Well, this morning we are continuing our series in Colossians. If you would turn to chapter 2. Beginning in verse 6. Therefore, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Came across an interesting story. A little girl became restless as the preacher's sermon dragged on and on. Finally, she leaned over to her mother and whispered, Mommy! If we give him the money now, will he let us go? (laughs) Long sermons aren't necessarily better sermons simply because they are long. And saying a lot isn't always the most helpful thing. In Colossians 2, 6, and 7, Paul doesn't give us a wordy statement to make his point. But rather, in two short sentences, he shares what is the centerpiece of his entire letter. Commentators P.T. O'Brien and Doug Moo called these two verses the heart of the Colossian letter. And David Powell in his commentary said, It is not an overstatement to consider this the key verse for understanding the letter. Two verses. That's it. But if someone asked you what Paul's letter to the Colossian church is all about, I think with confidence you could point to this verse as Paul's response to how Christians are to live with respect to the false teaching that comes our way. In the Colossian church, the gospel has been assaulted. It has been undermined from within and from without. The philosophies being spread in the church were undermining the gospel that Paul had preached to Epaphras, who came to faith in Christ, and then Epaphras, while in Asia Minor, living in Colossae, plants this church and shares the gospel that Paul shared with him. And these false teachers were espousing numerous teachings, intellectualism, idolizing the human mind and idolizing knowledge above faith in Christ. They were denying the humanity and the deity and the sufficiency of Christ. They had a mystic view of God that said that God was only knowable to a few individuals. And most seriously, the message of the gospel was being declared too simplistic to have any real value. And sadly, many of these philosophies still ring true and loud today, leading many to the belief that man is the ultimate source of wisdom and knowledge. And I think Paul's letter wonderfully does transfer from the first century to the 21st century. It has something to say to believers today. With respect to the Colossian church, what is most alarming about this human philosophy that Paul is combating is that as we read in verse 4 of chapter 2, what we studied last week, 
Paul writes this, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The arguments that the false teachers were making were were plausible, and these were persuasive men. And they are today persuasive and plausible arguments. It's, It's why Paul's letter to the Colossian church is relevant to us now. The church is not immune to the dangers that Paul addresses in this letter because by today's arguments that people are making by those who oppose Christ are still persuasive. They're still plausible. They're still arguments that tickle the ears and draw people away from the simplicity of the gospel that Paul preached. The false teaching that exalts itself against the lordship of Christ, against the, the sovereignty of Christ, still comes from both without and within the church. And they are philosophies that you would be aware of, that many of you encounter both outside and not within, I hope, Grace Church, but within the church as a whole. Walk into any Christian bookstore And you will see persuasive and plausible philosophies that have strayed far from the gospel of Jesus Christ, from the simplicity of God's word, from the veracity of scripture, from without we experience the the attack of, of liberalism on the church of Christ today. Science and human wisdom all but say God does not exist. Christianity is labeled as a belief system for just the poor and the ignorant. Christianity stands today in our society as a pariah. Because human wisdom has exalted itself above the truth of who God is. And humanity has begun, as it always has throughout history, but has begun even more so in our day and age to glorify itself as the highest good and the end of all knowledge. And anybody who would disagree with that would be ignorant and even stupid. That's what we battle from without. But we also battle from within. These arguments, these plausible and persuasive arguments, we battle from within. A a gospel that promotes a pursuit of prosperity based on an individual's ability to claim things that God must deliver. That's just one of many philosophies. Just a few years ago, the emerging church philosophy came about that Scripture, Scripture could not be known completely. And that it would be arrogant to believe you could understand Scripture completely. That was just 10 years ago. And from within the the ongoing doctrine of our indwelling goodness, that loving myself is my highest priority, the church 
is regularly under assault. And so Paul, as a pastor, as a shepherd, writes to this church in Colossae to protect this church, to warn this church, to guard this church from buying into these philosophies, from buying into these false gospels that are being proclaimed. And, and to the Colossians' credit, it appears that they were not being totally swayed into this. In, in verse 5 of chapter 2, Paul writes, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. Paul is, Paul is encouraged that they have remained firm in their faith. And so chapter 1, Paul, it, it, it's the beginning of Paul's battle against all these false teachings by setting the argument of his foundation. Paul battles false teaching with one thing. He battles it with the simplicity of the gospel, of declaring Christ and him crucified. He declares the supremacy of Christ as we see in, in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. My friends, we could read that one passage every week and never, never tap into the depth of what it is saying. We could hear that one passage preached for the rest of our Christian lives. And although we might be tempted to think we could be bored, we never would. We never would. And it is that argument, that gospel declaration in these verses of who Christ is and all that he has done that Paul uses to argue against the false teaching, the philosophies, the false gospels being preached in his day. It protects the church. And it is this that protects you. It is this, that, that verse, that those verses 15 through 20 alone, you study and meditate on those verses and it will create in you a growing discernment of what is true and what is not true, of what is biblical and what is not biblical. Paul teaches them all about the supremacy of Christ, the sustaining power of Christ to hold all things together. And he tells the Colossians of their need to remain firm in the gospel as they continue to walk in Christ. My proposition this morning is simply this. If we are to faithfully walk in Christ, we must hold fast to our confession and our knowledge 
of Christ. If we are to walk, if we to faithfully walk in Christ, we must hold fast to our confession and our knowledge of Christ. And in this passage, I think Paul defines what it means to walk in Him, which is the title of our series in Colossians. Each chapter, Paul references something about walking in Christ. And the first point is this, our confession of Christ. What it means to walk in Him, how do we walk in Him? It is it is grounded in our confession of Christ. Foundational to these two, this, these two verses is the opening sentence in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. We'll stop right there. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Our confession is the beginning of our life in Christ. It's where we submit our lives to Jesus' lordship with a life that was at one point never submitted to any area, any lordship of Christ. It all began with our confessing Christ as God has regenerated our heart. In Romans chapter 10, a familiar passage to you, Beginning in verse 9, Paul says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, receiving Christ is more in this passage than just receiving him as our personal Lord Paul has a much broader view in mind of our confession and what that means and our receiving of of Christ. Paul has more in mind when he says, just as you received Jesus the Lord. Paul reminds them that they have not received oral traditions of just moral and ethical behavior, that that's what the Christian life is all about, that it's just moral and ethical behavior but that you've received Christ himself. You've received a person. You've been engaged by a person, not an idea, but by a person. They are totally and eternally united to him, to a person. Their identity is now in a person, and it is an identity that is rooted and built and established in him, as Paul goes on to say. The invisible God is now visible to you in the Son. This is what Paul is saying. When you received Christ, the invisible God became visible to you. You now see and know the invisible God because you have confessed and received Christ. You know the creator of the universe. You know the sustainer of life who is the first to rise from the dead, who has promised you a future resurrection. You now see in Christ the fullness of God in His mercy, the forgiveness of His love, His power, His holiness, His perfections, His promises, all in the person of Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's the person that you've received. Therefore, 
You belong to the incomparable Christ. The Christ of chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. The one who is the image of the invisible God. You belong to the incomparable Christ. And having been changed by that gospel, you now walk in Him. You walk in Him. And Paul is saying there are dangers along the way as you walk in Him. And it's why he writes this letter, Each day I walk through Ur- Urbana District Park. It has a mile loop and it's wildlife. I see wildlife every day. I saw, I, I, saw, um, I think it was a groundhog. I don't know my animals. Um, I think I saw a groundhog. I know I saw a rabbit because I knew the ears. Um, I was walking home the other day and I was walking across this bridge that goes over, over the, this spillway and, and creek and, and standing in the middle of the path was a snake. And it was a snake about the width of the path. And, and so we had a bit of a confrontation. I ran and he chased. And, uh, and I know my poisonous snakes. And he was not a poisonous snake. But he felt like a poisonous snake. And he was still dangerous because he has teeth. And, and, and I was aware of the danger. And so... I ran, which is what any wise man and individual would do. There are dangers along my pathway. There are dangers along the pathway that you face. But you have, you have one who dwells in you, who stands with you, who you receive this person whose identity now that you have adopted who protects you. And that's why Paul has established this truth of the gospel, this simplicity of the gospel, this reminder that you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. There's nothing else. There's no one else. There's no philosophy. There's no teaching that can usurp the Savior, that can usurp and undermine this gospel. Don't let it fight against it. Let that be your confession that you are Christ's. It is a broad confession of all in this room that we believe Christ and that we're willing to live for Him. What we believe about Him and what we're willing to do for Him. That's our confession as Christians. We live our lives as a confession before God. We affirm our submission to Christ and Him being Lord, Christ Jesus the Lord. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, as you submitted your life to Him, you submitted to an ongoing confession of this is how I will walk and this is how I will live before God. And how we walk in Him does declare our life in Christ. Churches throughout history have wonderfully been bolstered by historic confessions that have kept them from error, that have kept them from doctrinal decline, 
The Nicene Creed, which we read and I want to read right now for you, just as a reminder of what it means to receive Christ Jesus the Lord. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, meaning universal and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, that is your confession. We cannot walk in Christ and with Christ without first having confessed Christ as Lord. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, this is the step that we confess with our mouth that He is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead and we believe that in our heart. And the promise of Scripture is that we will be saved. Verses 15 through 20 in chapter 1, which is much we see in the Nicene Creed, they must ever be on our hearts and our lips. We've received Him by our confession. We must walk in Him by our ongoing confession. Secondly, We live for Him by our confession and we live for Him by our walk in Him, our walk in Christ. Look at part two. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, in in chapter 1, verse 10, we're commanded by Paul to, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In theology, in theological circles, they use this phrase, the analogy of faith. 
And for those of us who are not academics, what does that mean? Well, the analogy of faith simply means that the most effective and accurate way to interpret Scripture is through Scripture, by Scripture, using other Scriptures. Verse 10 of chapter 1 And I will read that again. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That verse interprets this verse for us in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. What does it mean to walk in Him? Well, Paul tells us it means to walk in a manner worthy fully pleasing, bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God. When Paul says to walk in Him, it means something very significant to Paul. It's an imperative, a a command on how we're to live as believers. This isn't a suggestion, it's a command. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. You are commanded to walk in Christ. To walk in Him, the one you identify, the one whose identity is now yours. You are to walk in Him because He is Christ the Lord. And Paul's prayer in chapter 1, where he says in verse 10 that we are to walk in a manner worthy, it is a prayer to live a life pleasing to the Lord. Paul says you want to combat the false gospels that are being taught. You want to combat the worldliness that that assaults your life. You want to combat the liberalism you face in your day. You want to combat what tries to get into the church and undermine and divide the church. You want to combat that. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner that is pleasing to God. That is bearing fruit for God. That is where you are increasing in your knowledge of God. Doug Moo said this. He said, Let Christ and no other, for He is Lord, establish your values, guide your thinking, and direct your conduct. Paul uses four participles to elaborate the nature of life or the walk that should characterize believers. They tell us how we can continue to live a life that gives Christ his rightful place as Lord. Now, when I read that, my first question was, what is a participle? (laughs) And thank God my wife homeschooled our children. So I got online and I looked up a participle. Do you know what a participle is? It is a word form, a verb, a word form as a verb to be an adjective. And so that's what he's talking about here. And that first participle is a past participle. I learned that as well. I'm not taking any homeschooling English exams, but I do know what a past participle is. And that is rooted. You have been rooted in Christ. Uh, it's, a, it's a horticultural metaphor similar to chapter 1 where Paul says bear fruit for Christ. This is the, a, a past that you have been rooted. Psalm 1 helps us to understand what Paul is talking about in this having been rooted. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, increasing in knowledge. And on his law he meditates day and night, getting established in the faith. He is like a tree planted, rooted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. John 15 talks about abiding in the vine as a branch. What does it mean to walk in him? It means to be rooted in him to increase in our knowledge. It means to be built up, as Paul goes on to say, another participle, built up in him. You have been built into something. What have you been built into? You have been built into a building, a, like a stone cemented into a building. You've been built into the local church. You've been built into Christ's body and you are continually being built. It's not just a past participle, it's a present participle. It's an ongoing. You are not just having been built, you are being built into Christ's church through fellowship, through teaching, through living together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, Doug Moo says this, together these participles emphasize that believers can live lives that exemplify the lordship of Christ only by remaining like branches firmly attached to the vine in which God has himself placed them and by continuing to allow God to integrate them like stones into the new structure that is nothing other than Christ himself. Oh, what a calling that we have to be rooted and to be built into Christ, into the person of Christ, to walk in him and to be rooted and built into one another. Listen, there's a, just this week alone will tell you how much division and hostility exists in our society. Where people live lives of fear, wondering what, what's going to happen tomorrow with no understanding or hope for the future. And yet as believers, as those who have received Jesus Christ, the Lord, as those who are walking in Him or those who are rooted in Him and built up in Him. You sit among family. You are not alone. You do not have a dividing wall of hostility in this place. What a gift we have to be part of the church. Christianity cannot be lived out in isolation, but must be lived out with one another. And that is usually glorious, and on occasion, not so glorious. <laughs> but it's a gift. And then Paul goes on to say, not just rooted and built up in him, but established in the faith established in the faith. 
Paul's anticipation is that as a result of being rooted and being built up, you will be established in the faith, the historical truths of the Christian faith, the historical truth of the gospel, of Christ's death and resurrection, of his sinless life, of his incarnation, all that attends to the gospel, you are being established in that. Because you have received Christ the Lord. But he's also saying, this is also a present participle, that you are being established, that you are established, being established in the faith is not a one-time event. It's not a one-time experience. It's not a, I got it now and it's time to move on. No, you are being established in the faith day by day. That's why Paul in chapter 1 talks about increasing in knowledge. Increasing in the knowledge of God. And that happens as we personally study Scripture and as we corporately study Scripture. As we gather together on Sundays to listen to the Scriptures preached, to listen and to hear and to invest our lives. And it's where we live out this corporate life right here. It's where we are established in the faith. All of us who believe in Christ have been rooted and built up and established in Him because we have received Him as Christ the Lord. And now we are to walk in Him. And then Paul has one last participle he wants to throw out to us just as you were taught established in faith just as you were taught so there is that idea again of corporate being taught abounding in thanksgiving i love that paul uses abounding in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a theme in Paul's letter. We see it in chapter 1 in in verse 12 where he says, giving thanks to the Father. We see it in chapter 3 in verse uh, 16 with thankfulness in your hearts. And here he talks about abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding. The result of being rooted in and built up and established in the faith because of what we've been taught, that we will abound in thanksgiving to God. And that, my friends, is to be a hallmark of your walk in Christ. If there's anything that Paul... I mean, this is the one thing that Paul says is a, an expression of your walk in Christ. He talks about rooted and built and established at things that have happened to you. But here, abounding is what you do. Abounding in thanksgiving. Your walk in Christ should be exemplified by thanksgiving. Exemplified. There's an overflowing thankfulness, Paul says, that is the hallmark of his life and should be ours as well. Thanksgiving plays a prominent role in all of Paul's letters, not just in Colossians. 
That is what our walk in Christ should be. So we have our confession, we have our walk, and then finally, we have our goal for Christ. We have our confession of Christ, we have our walk in Christ, and we have our goal for Christ. And our goal is, Paul says it here in verse 6, so walk in Him, but I want to expand it further. Our goal is simply this, in verse 10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I think we could study that word worthy over weeks and not exhaust it. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Our goal is walking in a manner worthy, fully pleasing, bearing fruit, and increasing in knowledge. You know, we can have many goals in life. And we do have a lot of goals, I think, that compete with this goal of walking in a manner worthy. Whether it's the goal of happiness or the goal of financial security or job success or freedom from stress and worry, a good marriage, obedient children, a good church, a healthy life. I mean, these are decent goals. But as good as many of these things are, there is no more loftier or godly goal that exists than this one, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's a very small point, but I think it's one of the most critical points. What is our application? What does Paul want us to do in this passage? What does he want us to accomplish? Well, I think it's pretty clear the imperative, the command is walk in him. Because we have been rooted and built up and established in the faith. But we are to continue to be established in the faith. Just as you were taught, Paul in chapter 1 talks about increasing in biblical knowledge. We must, as a church increase in biblical knowledge. In other words, simply put, we must have a love for God's Word so that we can bring to bear the truth of God's Word upon our lives. Because God's Word makes a claim upon our lives. It demands something and many things of us. But because we are rooted and established and built up in Him, because we have confessed Him as Christ the Lord and He is our Sovereign, we can grow in the knowledge of Him and we should. So that's the first point of application is just increasing in biblical knowledge. And the second point of application is a commitment to biblical application. Fully pleasing, bearing fruit, abounding in thanksgiving. 
Those, those are applications. That's how we're to live. And because God has given us his spirit, we can live. My friends, this passage is so simple and so gospel-oriented and so hope-filling. Christ is our Lord and we can walk in Him. Let that be the hallmark of Grace Church, that we walk together in Christ for Christ, for His glory. Let's pray. Father, You are our Lord. And we confess You this morning as our Lord. You are the One who came down from heaven, became human, lived a sinless life, took our sin upon Yourself, died the death that we should have died, paid the debt that we owed, took the wrath that God would have rightly given us, and risen. You rose from the dead. And You've ascended to the Father, and You will return one day. That's our Gospel, Lord. And that's the gospel we want to walk in for our lives. Lord, please seal that to our hearts today. Please strengthen us to do that. Please protect us and give us discernment when we face false teaching, when we face competition for our love for You. Lord, may the gospel give us eyes to see, discerning ears to listen and understand that we may live for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.